You've come to the right place at the right time to learn everything there is to know about the world of collecting. It's The Collector's Show with Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio. And let me start out by apologizing to the audience. I had announced we were going to have a show about glass and historical glass two weeks ago, and unfortunately, um, I went to do the interview for the show, and the gentleman who'd agreed to do the interview was not available, and so far has never <laughs> returned a phone call. So, um, and that's twice this year since we started doing the program again, where I've announced a program was going to be on, and then things fell through interview-wise. So, um, it makes me hesitant to continue to promote new guests. Maybe I'll just uh, talk in general terms about what's coming in weeks to come, generally coming in the weeks to come on The Collector's Show. We will at some point have a program about amber candy molds at some point in the future, and then at another point in the future, another guest who's uh, agreed to be on a man who has a collection of weird birds and weird bird photos, some 150,000 of them, and he's quite a famous uh, scientist. But I don't want to give the week or the day or the time because I'm snake bit when giving dates and times. So generally speaking, that's what's coming in the weeks ahead. And then definitely coming in the interview segment, the National Music Museum at the University of South Dakota Sarah Richardson, who's the curator there, is going to join us in the interview segment to talk about a very large and important collection of musical instruments and uh, sheet music. That'll be in the interview segment this week. First, of course, the news from the world of collecting. Most of these items come from news stories that are published in local newspapers. It's not exactly the kind of news that you'd call earth-shattering, but it is of note to those of us who are in the collecting field. Collectors and their coveted collectibles come in all shapes and sizes, but as three hunter-gatherers prove, they all share a common mantra. More is more. Some people collect things for luck, others for spiritual enrichment. Loretta Gantenbean lives in a modest two-story home in Eudora with her husband Larry and 600 sisters, as in... Dolls of nuns, women of the cloth. My grandmother's four sisters were all nuns, she explains. Actually, there were five that went into the Sisters of St. Joseph order, but one decided she liked boys too much, and so she came out after a year. The other four stayed all their lives. With great aunts named Sister, boy, this is hard to say, Prexides, Sister Rosalie, Sister Emery, and Sister Daphne, it's no wonder that Ganton Bean chose to collect replicas of holy women more than two decades ago. It started with a traditional little eight-inch doll dressed in black and white, she recalls. She was the first one I got. Then we found a second one, and after that, collecting became religious. We moved into this house 20 years ago, and what few nun dolls I had, I had set up on the buffet in the dining room and took their picture. I had nine then. Now I have 600, it's unbelievable, and none of them are the same. Like many collectors, she's enabled by family and friends who feed her, the pardon the pun, the habit, 
<laughs> Gosh, that's really bad. My husband and I used to hit the flea markets in Kansas City every month, but my daughter is the biggest source now, she says. She came here and took pictures of all of them, row after row. She'll find something on eBay and check whether I already have it before she buys it and then gives it to me. Someday, she'll have to stop because she has no interest in inheriting the collection. Well, maybe she should stop looking on eBay. While Loretta's nuns are still confined to her dining room, Lawrence resident Dan Consolver's collection of golf memorabilia occupies virtually every room of the home he shares with his wife Rhonda and 14-year-old daughter Kelsey. We're living in the hobby, Consolver says with a hint of embarrassment. It started in 1985 with a small assortment of golf books and souvenirs that filled one bookcase in their former home. Today, their four-bedroom bi-level home in West Lawrence, Kansas, is a combination golf museum, library, shrine, and theme park with more than a thousand books and countless scorecards, pen flags, tees, balls, clubs, bobble-headed dolls, photographs, Christmas ornaments, and yes, even golf-themed pretzels on display. Dan even converted the study into a pro shop complete with life-size cardboard cutouts of golf professionals Arnold Palmer, Fred Couples, Paula Creamer, and Phil Mickelson. We saw Phil downtown at Kinko's and asked if we could have him, Rhonda said. They said because his image is trademarked, they had to cut off his head when they were done with him and couldn't give him away. I mentioned this to the FedEx driver where I work, and about a month or so later, I came in and Phil, Phil was laying on my desk. I think he means the uh, cutout, not the, not the actual golfer. The only rooms yet to be infiltrated by golf paraphernalia are the family bedrooms, although Dan admits the landscape is starting to change in the master suite. There has been some incursion, he admits. We have a great golf ball lamp on the nightstand and a set of blueprints from a miniature golf course there. Here's the third in the story. We all know the saying, find a penny, pick it up, and all the day you'll have good luck. For Gregor Brun, a copper coin found September the 27th, 1999, and downtown Lawrence, Kansas, provided more than a day of good fortune. It gave him his lifelong hobby. It was a lucky penny because I was going through some hard times then, Brune recalls. When I saw it on the street, I thought, if that's a 1968 penny, it will be an affirmation that everyone's going to be okay. He reached down, picked up the coin, and voila, 1968. I grew up with an appreciation for the counterculture and always thought 1968 was an especially interesting year in that period. Boy, he's not kidding. He, even as a kid, I had a fascination with the year and would collect items relating to it, records, books, magazines, and pennies. I thought, this is a lucky penny. I'd better hold on to it. Then a couple of weeks later, I found another one on the street in, in the Clay Center. Sure enough, it was a 1968 too. I started to wonder how many I could collect if I put my mind to it. Well, he put his mind to it, and a lot of his time to looking through all the change he could find for the magical mystical number. Soon others got into the act. Today, with a little help from his friends, his co-workers, and even perfect strangers, Brune's collection exceeds 21,000 1968 minted pennies. He even has a website, 1968pennies.com, devoted to it. Wow, I've never heard of that. I put up the site to acknowledge everyone's contributions because some of them have gone to great trouble to get the pennies to me. The collection is currently housed in a display case at the Hippie Boutique. The case is locked, but not because of theft conserves. I just 
didn't want anyone to get into the char and put in pennies that weren't 1968. That would contaminate the collection. He says he has no intention of cashing his pennies in, scoffs at the notion that he's bilking people. Some people think I'm doing this as a scam. One person asked me if it was a get-rich scheme. My goodness. A penny at a time is a get-rich scheme. There's got to be better ways to do that. So that's the news from the world of collecting this week. Three kind of good stories, all from Kansas. Coming up in the interview segment of the program is our friend from the National Music Museum, Sarah Richardson, who's going to talk to us about the incredible collection that they have there. At the end of the program, I'm going to be introducing a website for anyone who's ever felt silly in a family photo and a very big collection of toothpaste from right here in mid-Michigan. It's The Collector Show with Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in. More to come right away. Well, it's the interview segment of The Collector's Show, and this week we're very fortunate to have with us the curator of musical instruments from the National Music Museum at the University of South Dakota, Sarah Richardson, joins us. And Sarah, welcome to The Collector's Show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get too far into the interview, I want to ask you about your job responsibilities as curator of musical instruments. What course of study do you have to uh, have, or what kind of training do you need to become a curator of, of musical instruments? Well, oftentimes, um, to be able to get a position such as mine, you have to have some kind of training in music and specialization um, in a field of music. And for myself, I have a specialization in the history of musical instruments, which is a field called organology in which I actually came to the University of South Dakota to get a master's in that field. And the University of South Dakota is the only place in the country that offers that. And so in a museum that has musical instruments, or uh, which many museums in the country do, the people who are curators typically have a musicology degree or an ethnomusicology degree, or they have studied musical instruments in some way within that field. And you likewise studied music before you got your master's? I did. I have, a, I have a degree in music education, and I was a public school teacher before I decided to go into further my studies. So you must, as uh, someone who works in a museum and with a big collection of instruments, you must have an interest in history, anthropology, Definitely. popular it, culture. It, it helps, of course, to just be a person who really enjoys learning all about lots of big ideas and themes and, and trying to know more about history in general. It, it's very helpful. So having that vested interest in, in learning about older parts of culture is, is always helpful. And the collection there at the University of South Dakota, what we know and what people who've listened to this program know is that a lot of the collections that are at museums will start with an individual collector who will donate his or her collection to a museum or a university. Is that how things got started um, at the National Music Museum? It is. We actually started with a collection of instruments that was donated 
to the University of South Dakota by one gentleman, and his name was Arnie B. Larson. And that gentleman was a band director who, throughout his life, was passionate about musical instruments. And he amassed um, a collection of over 2,000 instruments, which were donated to the university. And the university then, through the help of his son, who's been our director ever since we started, in 1973 established the National Music Museum, which at the time was actually called the Shrine to Music Museum. And uh, for any historian who likes kind of fun little tidbits right. to break out at parties, um, <laughs> it was named the Shrine to Music Museum because in South Dakota, of course, there's Mount Rushmore. And everyone knows Mount Rushmore is Mount Rushmore, but the actual name of the carving is the Shrine to Democracy. And so the museum was kind of named in that sort of feeling. Sure. And then after we amassed our... our became a larger and larger collection, the name was changed to the National Music Museum. But it's catchy and it matches, and until just now I had no idea that Mount Rushmore was called the Shrine to Democracy. Um, so it makes sense that you guys, though, would... would uh, it has, it, a lot of people here in town still refer to the museum just as the Shrine. So it's kind of like we we changed our name a, a good fifteen years ago, but that's all right. That's that's how they remember it. So the collection started out with two thousand instruments that were originally donated, and Correct. it's grown like crazy. It has grown. Um, the collection now numbers around fourteen thousand eight hundred instruments, and these are instruments from all over the world, all time periods. We're not specific to one culture or to one style of instrument. These are a really, it's considered to be one of the most diverse collections in the world. So most people or maybe most Americans think about brass instruments, trumpets, trombones. Mm-hmm. What are some of the more unusual instruments that we might not have ever even heard, let alone heard of? Right. Um, well, for Western instruments, and when we refer to Western instruments, we're referring to European American instruments. There are all kinds of varieties of musical instruments that may not be played anymore. And for an example, there's a type of instrument called the tromba marina, which was a single string bowed instrument that was played in the 16th and 17th and 18th century. It kind of died out by that time. Um, So that's, that's an instrument we have on display. Also, they've become more popular again, but harpsichords are an instrument, a keyboard instrument, that for the time was the keyboard instrument that you play, but nowadays is, is a very specialized group of people who play harpsichords. So we have a nice collection of harpsichords um, for really unusual instruments. Of course, ones that people are not really familiar with would be instruments from other cultures. And so we have on display instruments from all over the world, including South Pacific and Africa and Asia. Um, I would say uh, one that always catches people's attention would be the Tibetan display of instruments. Okay. Tibet has beautifully decorated instruments. And even though they're a landlocked country, the idea of uh, integrating shells and ocean type of materials into their instruments is very strong. So we have these really nice horns that are made from conch shells. Oh, boy. Yeah, and then they'll be um, embellished with silver and coral and, and turquoise, so really, really ornate, beautiful instruments. And in addition, they also used um, 
materials that most people would shy away from now, but they used bones, including human bones, <gasps> trumpets and drums. That would, uh, I was a trumpet player once upon a time and um, don't recall ever seeing or learning about or having the opportunity to play a, a human bone trumpet. trumpet so uh, I know, and it, they look a lot different, obviously, than the trumpets that we play where they're, they're just one piece of bone that's been carved out and the, the mouthpiece is, is integral to the instrument, so it's right on the end, and then it's typically a thigh bone, and so where the ball joint is, would be where the bell is for the instrument. My goodness. Mm -hmm. They uh, put a lot of thought into this in terms of materials. But I think another thing we can learn from from this collection is the evolution of material science and the way these kinds of instruments were labeled. And I know when we talked earlier, you were telling me about the use of silver in these instruments. Tell tell us about that. That's true. Um, a lot of times by looking at instruments, you can learn a lot about, like you were saying, the materials used and the techniques that were used. And we were just discussing the use of silver because silver, of course, has always been a precious metal. And depending upon where you lived, the silversmith would stamp the instrument or the article made of silver to ensure that it was actually silver. And these markings help us as curators to date the instruments because the stamps, of course, would change from time period to time period and also from city to city. So you'd be able to learn where this instrument was made and at what point was it made. Um, that would be the same for uh, guild systems. Guild systems were very, very strong throughout Europe. And because of their regulations, they had very specific um, date, not necessarily dating, but signing techniques that they would use on instruments. And so it, even back three, 400 years ago, there are ways to date these objects. Yeah, prominence is one of the things we also talk about a lot. And it would seem that if there were a certain way to that a certain instrument maker signed his or her work, um, that it's recognizing, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the way to know that you've got an original piece of work versus, um, you know, a knockoff or a counterfeit. Right. Which, of course, then it's also, I mean, it's still very, not necessarily the easiest thing to figure out. I mean, one instrument, of course, everybody thinks of for wanting to have an authentic instrument is the violin. Right. And although there may be a label on the inside that's not necessarily meaning that it's original to the instrument. We get a lot of people who come to the museum with their instruments wanting us to help them determine, you know, who made this instrument. And inside it'll have a label, you know, a Strad. Uh -huh. Not a very, and of right. course people are thinking that, you know, they, here's their retirement fund. Um, but then very closely, if you look underneath, it'll say, made in Germany. Which yeah. is a really good sign <laughs> that it's not. Yeah, made in Germany. Strat. It was made by um, Hans Stradivarius right. at... Uh, <laughs> In his backyard. So, uh, yeah, I, I understand that um, you could really get your hopes up if you weren't able to really peek good inside your violin and, and uh, you only saw part of that. Talk about uh, dashing your hopes. But on the, on, on the other hand, do you ever find um, people come in like that and they have something that really is an important work of art or something you'd want at the museum? It's, it's amazing how many people will donate our instruments to us that are just fine, fine examples of musical instruments. We had a gentleman last summer 
bring in a Civil War era drum that was nicely decorated and just it was something that his grandfather had given him and he wanted it to um, to make sure that it would be preserved and so just off the street here comes this gentleman with this drum um, people do come in with just really nice examples of musical instruments you oftentimes never really know what you have until you start looking into its history and its maker and, and to see and it, it might not necessarily even be an old instrument um, if you think of uh, in the 20th century with the development of electronic instruments, a lot of electric guitars have become very, very um, sought-after collector's items. And so those are other instruments that are very popular. Now, at the museum, do you have guitars that were owned by performers that we'd recognize? We do. We do. We have a nice collection of um, guitars, which... Some of them, the big names of the owners would be um, Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. We have a couple guitars owned by Johnny Cash. We have a guitar owned by his wife, June Carter Cash. Um, We also have a very, very interestingly shaped guitar, and it's in the shape of a crutch. It's an electric lap steel guitar, and it's a crutch because it was made for Barbara Mandrell when she got in a car accident. Mm. And so her friend built her this guitar to help her kind of get a get on stage with both her guitar and her crutch because she had broken her leg. That's good multitasking right there. <laughs> it really is. It's it's fun. It's also powder blue. It's this really interesting looking instrument. <laughs> now, do people look, I mean, to sell things or do they want them uh, appraised so they can go sell them or do, uh, how do you guys acquire new instruments for the, for the museum? Well, um, as a museum, we are not allowed to do appraisals. Ah. We can give information to help people know what they have, but we cannot actually assign dollar amounts to that. Um, most of the time, what people do, especially if they're just wanting information, they want to know how old it is, mm-hmm. you know, what, who made it, stuff like that. And so we're always willing to help with that. Um, people, the collection itself, the way that we've acquired it, has been mostly through donation. Or the museum will actually seek out instruments to fill holes in the collection. So if, if an important maker, if one of their instruments is being sold, say, at an auction house or being sold on eBay, we actually buy quite a few instruments right off of eBay, then we will, um, we will actively seek out purchasing that instrument. But I would say the, the vast majority of our collection has been acquired through donation. Yeah, I... We, Two things we talk a lot about on this program is, um, and one of them is eBay, and it seems like no matter what it is in the world of collecting, eBay has it. So um, you're in good company. I think everyone in the show for two years is so far has mentioned eBay. So um, we'll go on there to look for other things. But you had mentioned when we talked earlier about a guitar that had been in a in the movie about Sergeant Pepper's. It was a trumpet. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. That's all right. It was a trumpet that was made um, in the shape of a heart, and it was made as a movie prop for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. Right. And it's, it's actually not a functional instrument, so it's one of two instruments on display that aren't actually functioning instruments. But it's, it's kind of fun to see the, the tubing, like I said, was in the shape of a heart, but it also has um, S and P in the the outline of the instrument in the tube. I'm sure there was a good reason for that when it was made, but um, I think that movie, now that I think about it, I think that's from the late 70s. Yes, 
and it unfortunately did not star the Beatles. Yeah. It starred the Bee Gees. <laughs> and um, that's probably why we don't remember a lot about that particular show. But anyway. But it's still, it's still a nice example of pop culture at that time. And it's kind of this nice little example of that. And you have other examples of other trumpets that were owned by uh, famous performers. Tell us about those. We do. We have, um, well, historically, we have nice instruments that were owned. Going, We have trumpets that actually go back all the way to the 17th century. But um, for modern players, we have instruments that are from the Frank Holden Company that are prototypes for the instrument that Maynard Ferguson played. Mm -hmm. So if you think of Maynard Ferguson playing his trumpet, and a lot of times, like Dizzy Gillespie, he had a bell that pointed upward sometimes. Oh, yeah. They call that the banana model. And so we have prototypes of that. Then we also have uh, a prototype of an instrument. Now I remember what it's called. It's called the Firebird. Ah. And it's a trumpet that has a slide in it. And so it's this combination of valve, trumpet, and slide that he would play when he was performing. See, I played the trumpet for a really long time, and I until today I'd never heard of a slide trumpet. Now, and for people who may not know, uh, Maynard Ferguson was a very famous trumpet player. He's um, deceased now, but he was in Stan Kenton's orchestra and, and uh, performed uh, as a solo performer. Um, and was very popular in the 1970s. Gillespie has such an interesting, or had, um, his embouchure is just all off. It, it's a mess, isn't it? <laughs> and then of course, as, as a player, and you see him with his cheeks all puffed out, that's everything every trumpet player or brass player has been told to never do in their life. But yet, what a fabulous musician. Gosh, yeah. that he could get out of that. With, I don't know how he played that <laughs> You know, I and and just kind of messing around. You try to uh, sound like like dizzy, and and all it just ended up was just bad. I I'm like you. I don't know how I got a sound out of I have no idea. out of that <laughs> horn. And if you're just joining us, it's uh, Web Talk Radio and the Collector Show with Harold Nickel. We're talking today with Sarah Richardson, who's the curator of the National Music Museum at the University of South Dakota. Now, for people who come to the museum, who are collectors of of music or instruments what are the things that they're looking for more often than not Um, a person who is has kind of a peaked interest in musical instruments or music a lot of times are to be honest a little overwhelmed when they come in we have we have nine galleries of instruments and so in each of these galleries you can really trace the history and the development of lots of different styles of music and also musical instruments. And so a collector of, say, since we're both trumpet players, a trumpet Mm -hmm. can come in and visually see how an instrument changes from its kind of earliest form all the way up until the modern version that you have today. And so a lot of times when, when people come, they want, you know, want to be able to see that development. And then if you're, uh, Wanting to learn more about it, we have a really wonderful archive that is open to the public with an appointment in which you can do much more research into a particular instrument maker or an instrument type. And so we do get a lot of people who are interested in that kinds of study and will come and and try to do just more in-depth research into their particular skills. 
And in addition to your collection of instruments, you also have a collection of sheet music. We do. We have a large collection of sheet music um, going back, I think, until about the mid-19th century. And so really nice varieties of sheet music. And uh, we, in addition to sheet music, have quite a bit of band music, so full band scores. We have music from the Civil War, music from the um, silent movie time period, which is always fun to see, you know, these huge uh, Wurlitzer organ kind of scores for people to play behind a movie. And so um, really nice examples of all these different types of music that were played, especially in the the 20th and the 19th century. Now, if if you could pick one single instrument in the museum and take it home to keep, which one would it be? Well, if I were to take one instrument out of the museum... um, it's a really hard question to, to answer. There are just so many wonderful examples here. Um, it's almost impossible to answer that question. I, I probably unfortunately want to say I want to take them all. <laughs> of course can't happen. <laughs> yeah, you'd, it would require a lot more space probably. Um, it would. It's a lot of space for us to store many of these instruments. Well, maybe something that was owned by like a guy like Maynard Ferguson or somebody like that. might. I think that would be fun to... Fun to have. It would be wonderful to be able to, to try it out, too. I mean, we have, we have really nice examples of instruments that were played, you know, of course, in all kinds of different time periods. And, and to be able to play an instrument, say, um, a piano, to play a piano that would have been around during the time of Mozart and play Mozart on that. Or yeah. to play a piano that, you know, was made in Vienna, which we have an example of during the time that Beethoven was living there. So that's another type of instrument that, of course, is always wonderful to hear the music written for that instrument played on that instrument. Now, while he was not an accomplished musician, he was certainly, and remains, very famous. Bill Clinton has an instrument at your uh, museum. Tell us about that. We have, um, it's the Presidential Saxophone. It was made by the L.A. Sax Company, and it was presented to Bill Clinton as a gift. And, um, it's enameled in red, white, and blue. It has stars on it. And he played it, and then the instrument was uh, donated to our institution. There were 60, I believe, instruments of that style that were made, and this one is serial number number one. That is so cool. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. It's one of the ones that kids just love to see because it's bright and it's colorful, and then they get to know, oh, well, this was a president's instrument. Yeah, and that would seem to me that it would... Uh you know, be worth coming to the museum just to see that, but there's so many other things. Do you have any kind of special programs coming up in the spring for spring break planners or uh, people who are going to be traveling in the summer you want to tell us about? What we do is uh, we have a very nice concert series that happens. If you're going to come to the museum, of course, come any day. We're open seven days a week, actually. But um, if you get to come around a weekend on Fridays at noon, we have a nice kind of casual lunchtime concert, which is called our Brown Bag Series. Mm -hmm. And it's an hour-long concert in which we get musicians from all over the country and all over the world to come in and and give a presentation or concert either about an instrument or an instrument type or just to play music that they like to play. Um, The nice, well, I, I always really enjoy those concerts when the musicians actually play instruments from the collection. And so we'll have, um, Musicians come that will, a lot of times, will be performing on our keyboard instruments, so harpsichords, clavichords, pianos, that date um, all the way back to, 
well, from the seven, 1700s on are the instruments that we allow to be performed. And so those are a really nice kind of one-hour snippet where you can really kind of feel how the instrument's played and, and hear how it sounds. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that there would be uh, quite a deposit for people who want to check out an instrument that was from the 1700s. You probably have to leave more than just your driver's license at the front desk. <laughs> you know, actually, you uh, if you're going to, if you want to play the instrument, it's we don't typically allow people to play the instrument oh, okay. unless they're a performer that's coming in that we've kind of um, contracted to play. Um, but you can hear quite a few of the instruments uh, through a tour that we have, which is a, a PDA device in which you can watch video and listen to the instruments being played as you walk through the museum. So you can get an example of how they sound when you walk through. If I come to see the collection at the museum, how much time am I going to need? Mm. A lot of people... Well, of course, I think you just you don't have enough time ever to see everything. But um, most people usually spend about three hours here when they're walking through the museum. So a good half day to really get a good sense of right. the collection a good of half day. And if you're if you're interested in doing, of course, more research, then you would have to spend or have some more time to go through if you wanted to use our archive. And for people who might want to contact you, can you give us your website? Our website is nmmusd.org, and that stands for National Music Museum, University of South Dakota. With one of the biggest collections of instruments and music anywhere, the National Music Museum is at the University of South Dakota. And Sarah Richardson, who is curator, thank you so much for uh, taking time out to be with us on The Collector Show today. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Stay tuned for more coming up on The Collector's Show. I'm Harold Nickel. It's Web Talk Radio. Don't go anywhere. Well, as promised, I've got two more stories for you from the world of collecting. Um, and one I, I'm just going to tell you about, it's laugh out loud funny. It's awkwardfamilyphotos.com just spell the word www.awkwardfamilyphotos.com and it is a collection of what the title says awkward family photos and the fellow who has done the website also has a book coming out I'm going to try to find him at some point although as I said earlier I'm not going to tease any uh, any more of next week coming on the collector show because it's just bad luck so in the fullness of time, we'll have uh, him on, but awkwardfamilyphotos.com. And then another story that I wanted to end the program with, um, an occupational-related collection for this man, Dr. Val Kalpakov, who has the world's largest toothpaste collection. He owns over 1,800 different types of toothpaste, and he holds the world's record for the largest toothpaste collection. And I got this from the uh, Saginaw News, which is a local paper here in mid-Michigan. I thought that collecting toothpaste was a nice hobby for a dental professional. It allows you to learn more about your profession, he said. I had friends all over the world, so I asked them to mail me toothpaste from the countries where they lived. The world's largest toothpaste collection available to, pub to public to view at his practice, the ironically named Denture Care Clinic, 
at 1227 North Michigan in Saginaw, Michigan. Kalpakov, known to patients simply as Dr. Val, said his interest in collecting tubes of toothpaste started when he read about Karsten Gutzeit, a German who collected 500 tubes of toothpaste. So he began buying toothpaste on eBay. Is there anything not for sale on eBay? And contemporary versions and stories. Here's what I thought was interesting. Some are whiskey-flavored, and some taste like curry, and others like bamboo. Ugh. How do you? How does anybody knows what bamboo? What bamboo tastes like is beyond me. Maybe he asked a panda bear. One dates to World War II and is made with a radioactive compound. About a fourth of his largest toothpaste collection is displayed in the waiting room at the denture care clinic. He works there as a denture specialist. Kalpakov graduated from medical school in Russia and began working as a pathologist and researcher, and then in 1993, he immigrated and worked as a researcher at the University of Michigan. In the year 2000, he graduated from the University of Michigan Dental School and moved to Saginaw, where he now practices. Kalpakov also maintains a dental practice in Atlanta and travels back and forth. After I started my website, toothpaster, <laughs> sorry, toothpasteworld.com, people were able to find me on the Internet. Several people donated me their small collections. Some companies donated me their old and recent products. One of the items Kalpakov considers to be the oldest, most rare, and most expensive an English antique Georgian 1801 silver tooth powder box. Toothpaste was not invented at that point, and tooth powders were, were used instead. He paid $1,500 for the box. Among his favorite toothpaste, no surprise here, the whiskey, scotch, ripe bourbon, red wine, amaretto, champagne, and other alcohol-flavored toothpaste. I've recently acquired a nice set of, this is his quote, Five booze-flavored toothpaste from the 60s, 1960s. My other passion would be chocolate-flavored toothpaste. I have a set of pure chocolate cream packed into a toothpaste tube with a toothbrush for chocolate lovers. It's more like a gag gift, though, more irony from the world of dentistry, gag gift, though it's not intended for brushing teeth regularly, he said. So, two fun websites to check out, awkwardfamilyphotos.com and toothpasteworld.com this week on The Collector Show. Next week, no do I dare say it, a man with 70,000 photos of weird birds, but I'm not going to tell you his name or where he's from. It's uh, a well-known scientific institution, and that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to jinx myself any further. Plus news from the world of collecting next week on The Collector Show on Web Talk Radio. Man, I thought this was fun this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did enjoy doing the program. Come back next week for more. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your I'd be rich.